We are back in the wisdom writings, uh, the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and I want you to remember that in the ancient wisdom writings in the Bible, wisdom is always personified as a woman. So today, let's see what Lady Wisdom has to say to us about these things, zeal, nefesh, and the blame bus. And we'll start with zeal and nefesh. This is out of Proverbs chapter 19, verse 2. Let me read this for us, and we'll pop it on the screen. Desire okay, or zeal without knowledge is not good. How much more will hasty feet miss the way? This is a, um, this proverb is about the relationship between zeal and knowledge that needs to take place in our life. And I want to show you a short video of what happens when zeal and knowledge don't work well together. It's of a science experiment. Let's pop this up there. That wasn't supposed to happen. He's in shock and he just keeps saying, that wasn't supposed to happen. And they ask him, do you need a fire extinguisher? She goes, Oh, no, 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 no. And he blows it out. That wasn't supposed to happen. You can get it off there, Levi, okay? Now, you have to admire this person's zeal. He had all kinds of zeal. He was trying to do something great for his students. He was trying to do something both informative and fun, but he didn't have the knowledge of how these chemicals and how heat would react to these chemicals. He had the zeal, but without knowledge. Now, the word zeal that is found in this proverb is actually the ancient Hebrew word nefesh, which means desire and appetite and passion. Zeal is a good thing. Zeal is what lights a fire inside of us. Zeal is what gets us out of bed in the morning. Zeal is what gets us out there creating and living and achieving and working, which is so much better than stagnating inside your house, eating raisinets all day, listening to Radiohead or binge-watching some show on Netflix. That's just not a really great life, okay? Zeal is good. It's a gift from God. And that's why in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul looks at a group of believers, much like us, though they're fairly young in their faith, and he says these words to him. He says, never, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Zeal is necessary, it's wonderful, and it's good, but it needs a dance partner. It needs to constantly be dancing with knowledge, because zeal without knowledge causes so many problems that are way bigger than just some science experiment gone askew, okay? Let me list a few. First of all, zeal without knowledge gives us burnout. Many people have the zeal to get a job. They search for a job. They get out there. They get the job. Then they have the zeal to work hard at their job. So they work hard, and then they work harder, and then they work longer and longer and longer till they wake up one day, and they're crabby, they're grumpy, they're cussy with all the people around them, and they're fried. In fact, when their alarm goes off in the morning, their eyes open, but they don't feel like they can fully be awake for the whole rest of the day. They are burnt out. They had all kinds of zeal, but they didn't have the knowledge of how to work in Sabbath rhythm and rest into their life. Zeal without knowledge also gives us broken relationships. I see this all the time as a pastor, unfortunately. People are so zealous for this new relationship they're in, they rush into it and they go too far, too fast. And then they wake up one day and they go, oh my gosh, I'm stuck. And there's no way out of this relationship except for heartbreak. They had zeal for this new relationship, but they didn't have the knowledge of what this person was really like. Zeal without knowledge also gives us what I call helicopter parents. 
Some parents are so zealous for their kids to have a good life, and that's a good thing, but they're so zealous that they hover over their kids. They smother their kids. They make all their decisions for their kids. They put all kinds of pressure on their kids until one day their kids snap, and at the first available opportunity, they bolt out of the house and pierce their navel and move to Morocco or something like that. They've just absolutely had it, okay? These parents had zeal in spades. They had all kinds of zeal, but they didn't have the knowledge of how to have boundaries and trust and space in a relationship. Zeal without knowledge also gives us other horrible things like terrorism and religious extremism and nationalism and all other kinds of ugly-ism. A great example of zeal without knowledge is actually found in Luke chapter 9. Jesus is talking to a group of people and they treat him quite rudely simply because they weren't wild about the fact that he was a Jew. And two of his friends, Jesus' friends, James and John, his friends and disciples or followers, they, they witness this interaction, this rude interaction Jesus has with this group of people. So they walk up to Jesus and they ask this question, do you want us to call down fire on these people? Probably remembering the Old Testament story of Elijah calling down fire and consuming a sacrifice on an altar. And Jesus doesn't correct him. He doesn't say, well, you can't do that which is shocking to me because evidently they could, okay? But he answers them thankfully and says, no, (laughs) okay? Because I'm not sure I would like Jesus very much if he said, yeah, go ahead and smoke these people, okay? But he said, no, don't do that. They had all kinds of zeal. They had passion for Jesus. They loved Jesus, but they forgot this very important chunk of knowledge that the way of life Jesus was inviting them into had nothing to do with payback and coercion and anger, but it has everything to do with forgiveness and love and mercy. Sometimes people are so eager to do something, they just end up doing the wrong thing. On the other hand, it's not good to err on the other side either. It's not good to have a life that's full of knowledge but has absolutely no zeal because that's no fun at all, especially when it comes to our relationship with Jesus. If all you have is knowledge and no zeal, you will acquire what I call flat tire faith. You have faith, but it's not going anywhere, okay? It's it's all belief and knowledge and no action. You're not actually doing anything. And the book of James, it's condemned. The book of James, it says, faith without works is dead. In other words, knowledge without zeal is a waste of time. This is where wisdom comes in. This is where wisdom comes in. We must live the kind of lives where zeal and knowledge are constantly dancing together inside of us. That way we can be driven, but we can actually be driven in the right direction. For help with this, I want to look back to the first chapter of Proverbs, verses 20 and 21. Let's just read these two short scriptures. Out in the open, Lady Wisdom calls aloud. She raises her voice in the public square. On top of the wall, she cries out. At the city gate, she makes her speech. That's so interesting to me, okay? Now, I love those verses because what it's saying is Lady Wisdom is always talking. She's always calling out to us. And if we'll slow down long enough in our life, we'll actually be able to hear the voice of Lady Wisdom speaking to us and letting us know if we need more knowledge or if we need more wisdom. And trust me, Lady Wisdom can talk to us. She's fluent in all kinds of languages. There's so many ways she can speak to us. Sometimes she'll just speak words to our heart and we'll know there's some sort of adjustment we need to make in our life. Other times she brings a scripture to our mind and we think, oh yeah, that's wisdom for me. I know I'm supposed to follow what that scripture says. Other times she speaks to us through the voice of trusted friends and other people. And her most fluent language is that of experience. 
Oftentimes you'll have experiences in your life, usually really bad ones, where you crash and burn and you survive the situation. You think, I'm never doing that again. That's the voice of wisdom, okay? In all these cases, it's wisdom calling out to us. And wisdom is choreographing this dance between knowledge and zeal taking place in our life. And she's making sure that those two things are always working together. All right? Now let's move on to the blame bus. This is a fun one. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3. Excuse me. A person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet what do they do? Their heart rages against God. I don't know about you, but to be honest with you, when some unexpected trouble happens in my life, my first response is generally to look for somebody else to blame for that. It just makes life so much more simple, doesn't it? When you can have somebody to pin it all on. For many people, if they don't have a person to locate to blame for all their troubles, what they do is they turn towards God and they point their finger at him and they blame him for all the problems in their life. And it's easy to do because he's such an available scapegoat. This process of blame has been going on since the dawn of creation. When you read through the first book in the Bible, Genesis, which means beginnings, in Genesis chapter 3, we have Adam and Eve, which were probably real people, maybe, maybe not. They might have just been representative of humanity in general. But we have Adam and Eve, and they are placed in paradise, and things are going well, and then they bungle it up like humans tend to do, and they make a mess of things. Well, God comes to them in the Garden of Eden. He comes to them in paradise, and he wants to confront them over this mess they've made of things. And how do they respond? They instantly hop on the blame bus. Eve says, well, the serpent is at fault. In other words, she's going with the whole the devil made me do it argument. But Adam, he's the one that's really good at blame. He is gifted. He's got mad skills on blame because he says this phrase to God, the woman you gave me is at fault. So not only is he blaming his wife, something I never do for any of my troubles, okay? He's blaming his wife, but he's also saying, God, ultimately it's your fault because you're the one that gave me this wife that made me do this bad thing, okay? So he's kind of having, you know, two birds with one blame stone going on there. And then you read further in the Old Testament and the blame bus really starts gaining momentum in the Bible, especially the habit of blaming God for everything. As you read through the Old Testament, God gets blamed for everything from national, natural disasters to disease, even to military defeats. This is still going on today. This is why insurance companies call natural disasters acts of God because they're going, well, it's not our company's fault. Well, it's not our client's fault. Okay, it's God. Okay, it's on you, God. Okay, acts of God. Blame in general is just not a great way to deal with our problems. I want to show you a short clip by the author and speaker, Brene Brown. I love that little video, and it's so true. Blame is just an easy and very convenient way to download our pain and our anger and to get it out there. Quite frankly, it feels great. When I blame people, I'm not going to tell you it doesn't feel good. When I'm blaming somebody for something, it's like, yes, this feels so great. And and it's probably helpful because this person needs to know what a horrible human being they are. So it feels so great at the time. But in the long run, it's not good for us because it damages our relationship. And ultimately, it warps our view of God when we're blaming him because eventually we get to this place where we just see him as this hideous monster that is responsible for all the pain and heartache and tragedies in the world and in our lives. A little more on that later. But next time... 
some unexpected trouble happens in your life and you're just starting to step aboard the blame bus and look for somebody to blame something on, instead try this, and this will be incredibly difficult. Instead of getting on the blame bus, ask yourself two very important questions. And the first one is this, who do I need to talk to? Instead of just pinning the blame on someone and then letting your anger just fester and boil inside of you, instead, ask yourself, who do I need to talk to? And then take the step to reach out and talk to somebody, share with them your feelings, and, and give them a chance to own their actions and make things right. This kind of vulnerability can actually save relationships instead of severing them. And the second question, it's even more difficult, ask yourself this, is there something that I need to change? That is an incredibly difficult question to ask and to answer. This is what the proverb we read today was actually getting at it, because it's usually our own foolishness and mistakes that are ruining our lives, but it's easier to blame others or to blame God than it is to accept our own accountability for our behavior. But we've got to look at our own behavior, because that's where true change can happen. I love the author, Elizabeth Gilbert, and I've quoted her often in sermons, and look what she says in this. She says, I've never seen any life transformation that didn't begin with the person in question finally getting tired of their own BS. That is so true. When we finally get tired of our own BS and the excuses we make, and we actually have the courage to look at our own life and ask ourselves that question, what do I need to change? It's at that moment that we're open to meaningful character transformation taking place. Blame is easy. It feels good. The kind of vulnerability these questions lead you into will not feel good. It'll feel absolutely terrifying, but it makes the way for change and healing and growth to happen. And as for blaming God, let me end this message by saying a few things about that. First of all, have you ever thought how amazing it is that we're here, that we actually exist? We didn't have to exist but we exist, and there are miracles all around us. We are on a marble that is floating, not floating, is flying through space at an incredibly rapid speed with only a few random scientific laws preventing us from just hurtling out into the abyss where we'll freeze to death. Okay, And every single day we wake up with a human body. You're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and your body's just going to be gone or dissolved. Okay, We wake up with a human body, molecules stuck together in the shape of us, animated into life by the very breath of God. Then we go to a restaurant and we eat other molecules that are grouped together in a shape of a pizza. And then we go walk outside and we get inside of some other molecules grouped together in the shape of a car. And we drive to see some other people who are molecules grouped together in the shape of our friends. And some of those groupings of molecules even utter these words, I love you to us, another group of molecules. The whole thing is just this crazy cool miracle that we have the privilege of participating in. Life is a gift from God, and it's all held together by God. But then one bad thing happens in our life, and what do we do? If we can't find a person to blame, we point our fingers at God and we shake our fists at him and we throw him under the bus and we proclaim, sometimes even out loud, you've never done anything good for me, God. 
Haven't you ever been there? I'm laughing because I've actually been on this whole process, okay? That's what we do. We toss them under the bus when in reality, most of the troubles that happen in our lives, I've discovered, happen for one of two reasons. And excuse my language on the first one, but I don't know any better way to put this. Reason number one, a lot of trouble happens in our life. Crap happens. That's just a fact. God didn't cause all our troubles. He's not that random. He's not that cruel, okay? Sometimes crap just happens. Problems just happen because we live on a broken, sin-saturated planet. And if you try to figure out why all your problems happen, you'll go crazy. Sometimes there's just no reason for them. So number one, crap happens. Number two, we happen. So much of the pain in our lives, so much of the pain in my life has actually been self-inflicted. It's due to my own pride, selfishness, and bad decisions. So some of you right now, if you're honest with yourself, are blaming God for some of the trouble that's happening in your life. I get it. I've done that. We've probably all done that, and God's okay with it. He can handle the blame. He's okay with it. He's comfortable with it. But maybe today is the day to get off the blame bus, and it's time to see God in a completely different light. Instead of viewing him as this horrible cosmic monster that causes all the trouble in your life and in the world in general, it's time to see him as this wonder-working, life-animating, joy-percolating presence, this presence that's even willing to enter into the ache with you, a creator who weeps alongside of you, a presence you can be grateful for instead of a monster you can blame. I love the Native American habit when they were weaving rugs in olden days. They'd leave one corner of the rug they're weaving, much like the rugs that are up here, but they'd leave one corner unfinished. There would be a blemish in it. And it wasn't because they didn't like perfection and they liked to look at rugs that had one area that wasn't undone. They believed it was important to leave that blemish because that's where the spirit entered in. And I thought about that in our own lives. I thought, oh, that's brilliant. Maybe, just maybe, the pain and hardship in our life right now that we're experiencing isn't a reason to blame the monster God, but it's a reason to be grateful for the merciful God, the kind of God who hears our cries in our trouble and enters into them. He enters in through the blemish of our hardships and trials and tribulations and difficulties. You know... Um, Game of Thrones just ended, and I'm the only person in America, maybe besides some of you that never watched a single episode of Game of Thrones, and there's a reason for that, because I have two 20-something old children, and they know what I'm like, and they said, Dad, you can't watch Game of Thrones. You're not allowed. They banned me from Game of Thrones, and I'm the parent. It's not supposed to work that way, but they banned me from Game of Thrones, but then my wife started watching it with them. I'm going, whatever. My wife's watching, and she goes up to me. She goes, no, no, no. You can't watch it. It's too graphic, okay? It's too bloody. It's too violent, and everybody you get attached to dies. So, Dad, you can't watch it. Sweetie, you can't watch it. And so I never have, and I never will. But during the last episode, which they all hated, don't know why, I haven't watched it, okay? But there was one character named Tyrion, and am I saying that wrong? Uh, I'm, Tyrion? Tyrion. So you guys are all watching it. That's really encouraging. Okay, so Tyrion says the coolest thing in the last episode. He says this, and I'll actually put it up on the screen. He says, there's nothing more powerful than a good story. As a preacher, I couldn't agree more with this. 
because the Bible's a good story. Life's a good story. Our relationships are good stories. And you want to hear a really good story today? It's this. It's the story of us. It's the story of us all choosing to hop off the blame bus because it's not leading to a good place. It's the story of us choosing to ask difficult questions that lead to transformation. And it's the story of us seeing God for who he really is, not a monster to blame and rage against, but a merciful God that enters into the pain and ache with us. That's a good story. That's a powerful story. And with that story in mind, can you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I just want to end our time today by praying for us.